Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that we know that your Word is trustworthy, that it is reliable. But we're going to seek to be able to um, really grow in that knowledge of that so that we'll be able to share that with other people who may want to know. And so, Father, we pray that you would equip us tonight, use us for your glory. And I do pray for the gift of teaching and to be able to uh, explain the information and your word the way you want me to. So we do, all of us ask for a fresh filling of your spirit and sensitivity to your spirit as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just so, just so you can know where we're going with the studies on um, Wednesday nights. Of course, we just finished our series on all about Jesus, and now we are um, still continuing in a, a apologetics series. And we're going to talk about what the word apologetics means shortly. But um, it's a two-part series about um, you know why trust the Bible, about the reliability of the scriptures. So it's just two parts. And then after this study, um, then we plan to go to Genesis, so the book of Genesis. And hopefully by that time, Pastor Jim will be done with 2 Corinthians because the plan is for him to start Revelation and me to start Genesis at the same time. So, and so that's the goal. And so next week, uh, just FYI, we are going to have a prayer night, but I don't want to have a prayer night without sharing the word. So there is going to be a, a short teaching um, on prayer beforehand, and then we'll get into uh, the prayer service afterwards. And so um, I'm looking forward to um, next Wednesday because we all need prayer, amen, in our nation, our families, our churches. We all need prayer. But like I said, um, we are going to have a, a short study at the beginning. That way, we'll make sure we get the word of God in our hearts and mind before we spend that time before the Lord. Um, but in regard to tonight's study, again, the series is entitled, Why Trust the Bible? This is part one, and we're going to talk about the reliability of the Old Testament, the reliability of the Old Testament. And so um, the goal is to get to the New Testament eventually, but Lord willing, not next week. And so we'll need a little more time to, um, to prepare. It's a lot of information to go through. And plus, um, I believe the Lord put it on my heart to have a prayer night and do a short teaching. Uh, but um, as I said, this is a, um, an apologetics type of lesson, but we need to know what apologetics mean. And so a definition of apologetics is to give a defense of what one believes to be true. We're not apologizing uh, for the fact that uh, we believe the scriptures that, that we say, hey, the scriptures, th- this is the only word of God that we have. We're not apologizing for the fact that we are Bible-believing Christians, but no, it's to give a defense of what one believes to be true. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we see that this is something we should be able to do, as it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. Not sometimes, but always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 
And so that word defense there in 1 Peter 3.15, if you look behind it, you look at the Greek, it's apologia. And so um, it's where we get apologetics from. We should be able to give a defense, give an answer to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is within us. Why do you believe that the Bible is reliable? We should be able to give an answer. Why do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? The only way to get to the Father. Why do you believe that we should be able to give an answer? But do it with meekness and fear. So it's, it's not to show how smart you are. It's not to, to just win an argument. But at the end of the day, when we talk about apologetics and we participate in that and we answer people's question, the goal is to remove any roadblocks that stand in the way of people seeing Jesus clearly. That, that's the goal of apologetics. And so we're going to do a short overview so you know where we're going with the study. And so we'll do a short introduction, and I'm kind of in the introduction now. And then we're going to talk about the Bible as a whole, um, just a few details, just some, some quick facts about the Bible. Because remember, we're going to save the reliability of the New Testament to a later study. And then we'll get into the details of the study, the reliability of the Old Testament. And so we're going to go ahead and show a quick video and you'll see uh, what the world is saying. And these are just some of the things that that people bring up. Would you say that the Bible is 100 percent accurate in all that it teaches? It was written a very, very long time ago. So the wording in some parts of it can be taken out of context because, of course, the context is way different now. So I think it's really important to mix in traditional values with new contemporary values because just how a society doesn't stay stagnant, I don't think the Bible should stay stagnant. I think it should grow with people and with us and with our belief. Yeah. I believe it has a lot of metaphors and I believe that a lot of different people can read it in a different way. But I don't believe it's the same for everyone. And some things may be a bit weird and some things are not as accurate as I would have them believe. So I think that through life you find different parts of the Bible to be more true to you than in other parts of your life. So that, that's how I believe in it. I think it depends. I think when people, I think it's been modified a couple of times. But the most important parts, I think it's, it's, it's fine. But people have did some changes in it, you know what I mean? But the word, I still think it's fine. Do you read the Bible? Uh, no, I don't. I, uh, I'm skeptical of organized religions run by men, or human. human. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of examples in history of people abusing that power and uh, saying something is the word of God when really it's more just doing what they want. And so I, I kind of try and keep a more open mind. Uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of possibilities out there, and I try to explore all of them. Is the Bible 100% accurate in all that it teaches? Absolutely. I think that, that as man grows in his wisdom, he essentially comes to know that the Bible is true. Uh, science is more and more proving the truth of Scripture uh, rather than the other way around. And so I believe that the Bible is God's word and it's perfect. All right. So you see that people have all kind of uh, opinions about the Bible, about what we know to be the word of God. And, and that, those are just a few opinions. 
If you spend time with anyone um, in your workplace, in your community, at school, speak to professors, whatever, you'll see that they have all kinds of ideas about the Bible, all kinds of views about it. But, but, but we want to make sure that we have an understanding as believers that, look, the Bible is reliable, and how do we communicate that with people? And, and more and more, um, you know, even probably even within some of your households, you're going to um, be faced with that question, maybe by some of your children, whether they're, um, you know, at a younger age or could be teenagers or adult children. They may pose these questions to you. And so we want to be ready to give an answer. And so, first of all, when we talk about the Bible. We're talking about a unified account about God dealing with mankind and his plan of redemption. That's what we see in the scriptures. Now, the Bible is one book, but it contains 66 books. It's it's all in a collection. But here's the uh, beautiful thing about the Bible is that it, it contains at least 40 writers. So 40 human writers. But of course, the author is the Holy Spirit who set aside certain men to write down his word that he breathed out. And it was written over a period of about 1,500 to 1,600 years, or approximately from 1,500 B.C. to 100 A.D. And so there was that silent period, that 400 years of silence, which we might touch on a little bit during the study. But but also it was written uh, by people from different walks of life. You know, you look in the New Testament, you see, um, you know, first of all, Peter, you know, who wrote first Peter, second Peter was a fisherman. Then you see Moses grew up in an Egyptian household when he was younger. You see it written by, um, you know, a shepherd slash king, King David. So written by people from all different walks of life. But then it was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia and Europe. Written in three languages, mostly in Hebrew, um, and that's you know referring to the Old Testament, mostly in Hebrew. There are some parts in Aramaic. Uh, for example, in the book of Daniel, the New Testament was written in Greek. And then you'll notice in this one book here, 66 books in this one book, you'll notice um, that there's different literary styles. There's some are letters, some are sermons, laws. Narratives, they've got some history in there, some poetry in there, prophecy, parables, allegory, etc. It goes on. And then there's predictive as well as fulfilled prophecy in the scriptures. And then the thing about the Bible that I'm thankful for and that people in the world should be thankful for, even those who are not Christians and they don't appreciate our beliefs is that it produced the highest results in all walks of life. People should be thankful that there is this change within us and that we're not the same crazy people that we used to be, the same sinful people that we used to be. So the Bible helped produce the highest results in all walks of life as the Holy Spirit empower us to obey this inspired word. But then we also see that the Bible remains indestructible in spite of all of the attacks, all of the attacks against it throughout time. And so we start with the fact that the Bible as a whole is inspired. 
We see that in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, where it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture is given by inspiration. It is God-breathed. It's breathed out by him, and it is useful. The Bible, the scripture is useful for doctrine. So if you want to know the correct thing to believe, sound doctrine, that's what you go to. You go to the Bible. You want to know the correct things to teach, you go to the Bible. It's also good for reproof. In other words, the Bible shines a light on the wrong that we do. And so it shows us that. But not only that, it doesn't leave us there, but it shows us how to correct it. So it doesn't just, you know, give us an x-ray and say, oh, you have this broken bone spiritually in your life. But it also tells us how to correct it, how to move forward and also for instruction in righteousness. But the main point I want to take from this is that it is inspired by God. It is God breathed. And then in Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 through 21, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is not a it. He's a he third person in the Trinity. So in other words, the prophecies that we see in the scriptures, they did not come from the prophets. They did not originate from the prophets. They're not speaking on their own, but by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when it says that they were moved by the Holy Spirit, it means that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were just going for the ride. And then one of the professors that I learned from, He also wrote books, uh, Joseph Holden. This is his quote. He said, inspiration is the supernatural that is not of this world operation of the Holy Spirit, who through the different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human writers, he invested the very words of the original 66 books of the Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very word of God without error in all that they teach Affirm, imply, or entail, that is, including matters of history and science, which we'll get to specifically as we look at the Old Testament tonight. But then there's that word, inerrant. And you may have heard inerrant or inerrancy. What is, what is that talking about? Inerrancy it means wholly true and without error. This is a byproduct of inspiration, not the other way around. And you see the points there on the screen and on the screen. And it applies to all that the Bible affirms, records, teaches, and implies. It is in error, inerrant, no error, without error, no mistakes in the scriptures. It's directly connected to God's nature. You see, God doesn't make any mistakes. In other words, God does not error. And because the Bible came from God, that means the Bible cannot err. And so it's connected to God's nature. But when we talk about the Bible as being inerrant without any errors or mistakes, we're we're talking about the autographs. We're talking about the originals that the Holy Spirit breathed out and he gave to certain men to write down. 
So he's talking about the autographs, the original, because um, some people could make bad copies, just like today. You can have a classroom full of children or, or even adult students, and you have something on the board or whatever, and as they copy copying down the notes, some are going to have better notes than others, because some might leave out a letter or whatever. And so um, th- this is referring to the autographs. And so today, we can imply inerrancy to our Bibles in that 100% of the message of the originals are there. Even though the very words may not come through at 100%, the the message is there, 100%. In other words, the the vox or the voice of God, the message God wants us to know is 100% in the scriptures we have today. And so we want to prove that by beginning with the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Old Testament scriptures. See, first off, we're going to start with. We're going to start with the transmission of the Old Testament. Transmission is just a fancy word. It just means it just talks about the process of copying the scriptures. You know, people have a concern about, oh, they weren't copyright or how can we know that the Bible we have is is, you know, is the same as the autographs or the originals. And so this is what we're going to look at, the transmission process to um, ensure all of us that the, the scriptures have been copied properly. And again, tonight we're focusing on the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament was written in stone. It was written on clay and in leather as well. And so you can see the notes there where you can find the scripture that is written on stone in Exodus, and, you know, some in clay. When you look at Ezekiel 4.1, for example, and then in the Jewish Talmud, which is a, a code of traditional laws um, that required that the five books of Moses, that is the Torah, be copied on animal skin. So that's leather. And by the way, we have uh, tens and thousands of manuscripts you know, some of which date to as early as 600 B.C. And so I throw out that word manuscript. And so I think it's a good time to just quickly put out or share what that is. And so when we talk about a manuscript where we're talking about an ancient handwritten copy. OK, they didn't have print back then. They have, didn't have printers back then. So they have some at one point they had to write it out. Sometimes they would use these other materials that we mentioned already, like leather, clay and stone. But but then there, there was something called papyrus, you know, type of uh, plant or whatever. They do their thing, press it together, dry it out, whatever the process was. They, they can write on that. But a manuscript is an ancient handwritten copy of a part or the, the, the entire biblical book. And so when we refer to uh, manuscripts, it could just refer to a small portion of it or the entire book, the entire scroll. And so that's all lumped into manuscripts. But when we talk about that tonight and Lord willing, when we talk about uh, the Greek manuscripts for the New Testament later on. But uh, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament was translated by a number of different groups within its history. You see, the Sopharim, um, which means in, in Hebrew, scribes, these were Jewish scholars who preserved and copied the biblical text from the 5th through the 3rd centuries B.C. 
And then you had another group of scribes, the, the Zugoth, meaning pairs of scribe. And so they copied the, the text, the Old Testament text from second and, and or in the second and first centuries B.C. That's before Christ. And then you had the, the Tanaim or the Tanaim, however you pronounce it. And that means the repeaters or teachers. And so they took over the copying process and, and you know, they took it over by A.D. 200. And they lasted until about A.D. 500. And then we're going to spend more time on this group. And that is the Masoretes. The Masoretes come from the Masora. And it means traditions. And so the Masoretes, they were of the scribal tradition between A.D. 500 to 1000. And the reason they were called the Masoretes, as you see there in the notes, is that um, they preserved in writing, they preserved the oral traditions, so all those, um, the word of God that's been handed down orally. They, well, they, they preserved it, they wrote it down, and they included the correct vowels because in the original text, there were no vowels. There were only consonants, but they made sure that people knew how to pronounce these words in the Hebrew, and so they, they made the correct vowel and accents, uh, markings in the scriptures when they made their copies. And so the Masoretes are the ones who introduced the vowels into the Hebrew text. Not that people didn't know what it sounded like, but in order to preserve the sound, they made these markings um, of, of with the vowel sounds in the text. So it just won't be only consonants without the vowels. And so the text that they preserve is what is called the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text. That is the standard Hebrew text today. And our English Bibles, most of them, are are based on the Masoretic text of, you know, these these Hebrew scriptures based on this scribal tradition. And we're going to see that they did a good job. And so when those who translate the Bible in, in English... The Old Testament in English, based on using the Masoretic text, we're going to see that it's reliable, that they did a great job in making sure that they copied the text of the scriptures accurately. And here are some of the things that they did to make sure that they copied correctly. They made sure that all of the letters and what they were copying were counted. They counted all of them. In fact, they even made sure they know what they knew what the middle letter was. And then they would count the exact number that went before and after that middle letter. And also, in order to make sure they copied correctly, even though they knew the scriptures by memory, they were not allowed to write down the scriptures and the copy by memory. They had, as a matter of fact, they had to read the scriptures out loud as they were writing. They, they also had to sit in full Jewish dress. Um, they, they also, if there were any old or copies that were messed up, so if there was a slip of a pen and they were made aware of that, they, they, they would ritually destroy those copies so that people won't continue to make another copy of those bad copies. And even if the copy was good, by the way, but it was worn out and something began to fade and and they would think, okay, maybe somebody could get confused by that because the letters would fade. They would ritually get rid of that as well. And so they were very careful. These mass Masoretic um, scribes, 
They were very careful in copying the Old Testament. And so another thing, and you may see this on the screen as well, that every biblical book that they copied would have a colophon. And that was pretty much the scribes' uh, notes, their personal notes on the details of what they did when they copied that manuscript. And they also included a count of the total number of consonants. They took this job seriously. It's a serious matter. Why? Because it is the word of God. And so when, when, when people who translate the Bible into English using the Masoretic text, which is the standard Hebrew scriptures or Bible that they copy from, rest assured that the Old Testament that we have in these English Bibles they, they, they come from a copy that is reliable. And so just to sum it up, when we talk about the reliability of the transmission of the Old Testament, the copying of the Old Testament, you know, just so you know, the Jews were careful. They paid attention to even the smallest details. And they even looked um, on their copies of the scriptures with almost some type of superstitious respect. And then finally, they believed they were copying the word of God. So they took their job seriously when when they copied that Hebrew text. But then here is some evidence here for the accuracy of the transmission of or the copying of the Old Testament. And so here are just a few examples there of some manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. The Aleppo Codex, a codex, by the way, is a bound manuscript copy so it's pretty much a book so if you're ever reading something about old you know text or manuscripts or whatever you see codex that's just pretty much think of it as book instead of a scroll and then you have the codex uh, linen gradensis um, and so when you compare that one um, to the early manuscripts of the masoretic text the, the scribes these masoretes when when you compare the early manuscripts um, to that, then you'll see that they did a great job in copying the Hebrew text. So, so these are just some examples you can look at and compare the Masoretic text to those, those Masoretic scribes. Wow, they were so detailed they, and they did a great job. But then there's some other witnesses to the Old Testament text to show that it's reliable, that it was copied properly. You have the Aramaic Targums, you have the Mishnah, um, you know, and it had some, um, in the Mishnah, by the way, it has some scriptural quotations that are very similar to the Masoretic text. Um, you had the Gemaras, um, you had the Midrash, and so you can kind of uh, look on the screen there and you can see what all of those terms mean. And so I'm not going to treat you like babies and read every single thing for you, so, you know, feel free to take a picture of it if you like. Uh, but then there is an important translation that, that came about between the Old and the New Testament. And so that important translation is what we call um, the Septuagint. The Septuagint. And the Septuagint is a Latin word, and it means according to the 70. And, it, and it's called according to the 70 or the Septuagint because it was translated by 70 scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. And, and the, pretty much the job of the Septuagint or what it is, is the translation of the Old Testament in Greek. 
translated between 250 and 100 B.C. And, you know, according to the notes there, it follows a slightly different Hebrew text than the Masoretic text. But in general, it's really close to the Masoretic text, to the text that those uh, Masoretic scribes um, copied. And then in regard to the Septuagint, uh, just so you know how important it was, um, it was the only Bible for the early church for a while. And it was also most likely the Bible that Jesus used. And it was also the text that Septuagint was, was most quoted by the apostles and, and inspired the writers of the New Testament. And so they used it during that time. And so again, it's just a, a Greek translation from the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's from the Septuagint that we get this influence of um, our, the divisions in our Bibles today, the thematic divisions in our Bible. And it also brought in new words because it's translated um, the Old Testament from the Hebrew to the Greek. And so Septuagint is an important um, translation and also an important witness to the fact that uh, the standard Hebrew text, the Masoretic text that our English Bibles were copied from is reliable. But then we have something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I know many of you heard of this. And these were first found in a cave in 1947 by a shepherd um, who lived, you know, they, along the edge of the Dead Sea. And so in those caves there, they, they were 11 caves, by the way, there was a collection of 931 documents that were discovered. So nearly a thousand documents were discovered. But not all of those documents that were discovered, um, you know, and Quram in those caves there near the Dead Sea, not all of them were biblical text. About 20 percent of them were biblical text. And there's some great text, some great copies um, that came from the ca- these caves in Qumran or what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so included, actually, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Is something important. And, and what was there was the book of Isaiah and the book of Isaiah that they found amongst these Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves in Quran. These are the oldest complete manuscript of any book of the Bible. So again, manuscript, these are written copies. So this is a written copy of the book of Isaiah in its entirety. They found that here. It was amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. And so this Isaiah Dead Sea Scroll um, dated back to 125 B.C. before Jesus came on earth and, and became a man. Because remember, he's truly God, truly man. But before he was born, came as a human, this scroll that they found among the Dead Sea Scrolls was written around 125 B.C. And that's interesting because before that, before they found that Dead Sea Scroll, that Isaiah Scroll, the oldest Hebrew text was about, it came about, you know, a thousand years after that. And it was a Masoretic text. And remember, we talked about the Masoretes. They were very careful in copying the scriptures. And so their copy of Isaiah was about A.D. 916. 
But here's the important thing, and, and I'll let the scholar quote it for himself. He says, even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in Qumran Cave 1 near the Dead Sea in 1947 were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. And the 5% of variation consisted mostly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. So in other words, it did not, the little differences there were, it did not affect any doctrine at all. Now that's amazing. Here you have a text that's a th- that came a thousand years later than this Isaiah scroll found um, 125 or created in 125 BC and yet and still they're pretty much word for word identical pretty much and so once again that that should give you confidence that the word of God the Old Testament what was copied accurately it's reliable but now we come to something a lot of people have brought up you, you may have thought of, uh, of this yourself. You may have heard this on TV. You may have come across family members and they may have brought up the next topic to you. Well, how do you know that the correct books are in the Bible? And so what they're referring to is the canon, the canonization of the Bible. And so since we're talking only about the Old Testament, we're just going to talk about the canonization of the Old Testament. And I want to make sure that you grow in confidence that the canon that we have of the Old Testament is accurate. It is reliable. And when you talk about the word canon, by the way, you can trace it back to a Greek word. And it pretty much means read. A read was used as a measuring rod and it came to be known as a standard. And so the scriptures that we have in the Old Testament, they meet the standard, in other words. And so when you apply canon to scripture, it means an accepted list of books. But what is a good test to make sure that a book belongs in the Old Testament, for example? Well, first of all, it was written by a prophet of God. Then you have to ask the question, was the writer confirmed by the acts of God. And the third question you should ask. Is that the message tell the truth about God. Which means you have to compare it with other scriptures. And then it, does it come with the power of God. And was it accepted by the people of God. See the people of God readily accepted. These Old Testament scriptures. According to one Bible scholar. The Old Testament grew gradually. And it came to be assembled. And accepted into a collection about the time of Ezra. That's about 400 BC. So they were accepted. But, but Pastor Durrell, what about that gathering? What about that council of, or that gathering at Jamnia? Some people bring up in 90 AD. You may have seen this in movies where people try to put down the scriptures. But what they don't know is that the purpose of that gathering in 90 AD was not to determine if the right books were in the Old Testament canon or collection. It was not for the purpose of adding new books, but it was to determine if the right books was already there. To determine if the right books were already there, not for the purpose of adding 
new books, just to clarify. And so here's some things that, that was kind of a hang up for them. You know, the Song of Solomon, they were like, oh, it's too erotic. But then, of course, it remained in there because they realized that there's nothing wrong with, with, with that, with what Song of Solomon covers in the context of marriage. And then they thought, well, Ecclesiastes was too fleshy. But, but it was kept in there because it has a godly conclusion. Even Josephus had it in the Hebrew canon, and so it belongs there. And then some people question whether or not Esther, the book of Esther, belong in there. It doesn't belong in there, they will say, because you don't see the name of God there. But then you see God working behind the scenes in the book of Esther. And then some thought that Ezekiel had Gnostic tendencies. But they, they realized that, oh, we think that because that's an interpretation problem. And so you still see these books as a part of the scriptures. And so... They, they just gathered to make sure that the right books were, were there and they stayed, but never. And it wasn't to add a book. They may have had a problem with Proverbs. They were looked at Proverbs 26 verses four and five, thought it was illogical, but they didn't realize that Proverbs was just given general truths about life. Pastor Durrell, okay, we got, we got those books. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the books we have in our Old Testament, but what about the Apocrypha? See, Apocrypha means hidden. And then you can look at those books there. You can see all that it includes, and it was added, actually, to the Old Testament. So you'll see it in some uh, Bibles because it was added by the Roman Catholic Church years later. And it was added by the Catholic Church in response to the Reformation. So they wanted to show that, okay, see, we do have things right. In order to support certain doctrines that are not biblical, they decided to include them in there to kind of, like I said, as a, as a counterpunch to what happened during the Reformation period. But Protestants reject these additions to canonical scriptures. So you, you don't see the Apocrypha in the scriptures that we have today in the English Bibles that, that we use. And there's a reason for that. And so that brings us to the next slide of why didn't the Apocrypha make into, into the Hebrew canon? How come it wasn't there? That's because it has, first of all, historical and geographical inaccuracies. And they, it was inaccurate when it, and it, because it has some anachronisms there too. So in other words, there were people, events, objects. There were customs that were out of place when it, when it dealt with chronology. It just didn't fit. They were off time-wise. It has false doctrines and it encourages practices that contradicted known inspired scripture. Um, and then it uses literary types and artificiality of subject matter uh, that's not, that wasn't on the level as other inspired known scripture. And then it lacked prophetic power, um, you know, and, and poetic and religious feeling. And then even the Jews admit that no voice of the prophets in the land, that there were no voice of the prophets in the land between Malachi and Matthew. But yet and still, some people accept these with some think or scriptures, the Apocrypha, but, but they're not. And then you have somebody uh, by the name of Philo, for example. He was an Alexandrian Jewish philosopher 
He often quoted from the Old Testament, but he never quoted from the Apocrypha as inspired. And he lived from 20 BC to AD 40. And then Josephus, he excludes the Apocrypha when he numbered the books of the Jewish Old Testament. So he numbered them as 22. And we'll find out why the lower number. And then you had the Jewish scholars of Jamnia. We just talked about them. They didn't recognize the Apocrypha. And then many of the church fathers, those who came after the apostles, they never um, received it. They spoke out against it. And then the earliest Septuagint we have from the 5th century uh, A.D., it, that, that had the Apocrypha, but we're not sure it was there in 250 B.C. And then here's the thing. You never see Jesus or the writers, the New Testament writers, quoting from the Apocrypha even though they will quote many times from the Old Testament. And so the last books that were written and recognized as canonical or as part of the Old Testament scriptures um, were Malachi and Chronicles. And so when you look at the Hebrew Bible, you'll traditionally see 24. And they're arranged in uh, three divisions. The law, the prophets, and writings. And Jesus, you know, when he talked to the religious leaders, he he never debated them about which book belongs in the Old Testament. And that's because they were working with the same scriptures. They were working from the law, the prophets, and the writings, those three divisions. And so you'll see that, you know, those, you know, the 24, you know, that number is different. Um, from the from the 39 that we have in the Old Testament. And that's because they they group some books together. First of all, like like first and second Samuel, they put those together, for example. And so Jesus clearly gives witness to the Old Testament canon. He shows us what is there in Luke eleven fifty one. And you can also see this in Matthew 23, verse 35. Jesus says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Well, Pastor Darrell, how does Jesus give a witness there to the Old Testament canon, to what was there? You see, Jesus confirms the extent of the Hebrew Old Testament canon. You see, they have the same books that we have. They group them differently, put them in different orders, but it's the same books in our English Bible. But in the Hebrew uh, Bible, it says, you know, Abel was the first martyr that was recorded in scripture and Zechariah was the last martyr to be named in the Hebrew or Old Testament in that order. And so that's why Jesus would say from Abel to Zechariah, You see, Genesis was the first book in the Hebrew canon and Chronicles was the last in the Hebrew order, in the Hebrew canon. But then Jesus said this as well. Luke 24, 44, he says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be filled, which were written to me. And get this in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus gave that three divisions that that were in the the Hebrew Old Testament. And so again, same books that we have, just in different order and grouped a little differently. And so there is a breakdown that I want to share 
of, of the Hebrew canon or the Hebrew scriptures. Um, as we look at the next slide there. The clicker's not working properly here, so thank the guys for helping. And so you see um, a little breakdown there of the scriptures. And you see, if you look on the right uh, of that chart, you see that, that all the books that we have, they have, they just group them a little differently. They break it down in the law, the prophets, um, and the writings. Um, and so the, the Hebrew um, old, you know, scriptures, they don't call it the Old Testament, but the Hebrew scriptures, we call it the Old Testament in English. Um, their scriptures is called the Tanakh. And so that's an acronym of Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Um, and it has the letter A between it. So it's called the Tanakh, and it refers to the entire Hebrew Old Testament. And so you see there that it has all of our scriptures. Again, English Bible is just um, ordered a little differently. And so our Protestant English Bibles today, um, it's in the order that we have it today uh, because it came from the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate, um, you know, pretty much got, you know, was a translation from the Septuagint or the Greek version. And so that's one of the translations that were used. And so that's where we get our divisions from. But again, it's the same Old Testament as the Hebrew Bible. And then we have archaeology that gives witness to the reliability of the Old Testament. And so archaeology, you know, it's just, you know, talk about the study of ancient things. So it's made up of two words, archaeos. Um, archaeos means old or ancient and lagos means word or treaties or study. So it's the study of ancient things. And the Bible is an archaeological document. And so when we talk about biblical archaeology, it's looking to discover uh, the correspondence between the Bible and what's found in archaeology. And so we're going to show that archaeology actually supports the reliability of the Old Testament. And so I want to start with the kings of Judah and Israel. And there's so many listed. The writing, the text is really small. Couldn't fit it all in there. Um, without going to another slide. So I wanted to keep it on one slide. But again, maybe you could take a picture of it, blow it up. You guys have those fancy devices. Praise God for that. And so the kings of Judah. And so what you'll see here is that um, those biblical kings on that chart that have an asterisk next to them, um, those are the ones who have been supported by archaeology. Something with their name on it has been found. And as you can see, something with David's name and Solomon's name have been found in some of these other kings of Israel and, and Judah and so forth. And so that, that's one example of archaeology supporting the scriptures. And then you have the code of Hammurabi. And so I'm not going to you know, explain all of that there. But the main, the main thing here is that this discovery of this code of Hammurabi, it answers people's objection to whether writing or even detailed moral laws were even possible during Moses's time. And so this, by the fact that this exists, shows that, yes, it was. And then you have the Ipure papyrus. <clears throat> this is interesting. This is interesting because it describes conditions in Egypt that are really close to the biblical accounts to the plagues in Exodus. 
Remember those 10 plagues? It's very close. Discovered in Egypt in 1828. And then here's something that I, there's something more recent. There's a fort that was found that was allied with King David. And according to Christianity, ChristianityToday's.com's article, Biblical Archaeology's Top 10 Discoveries of 2020, this was in the top 10. And so they're still finding things. And by the way, um, a lot of times they've already found things five years ago, you know, a few years ago, but they can't put them out in public until they're cataloged. And so don't be surprised when more things come out this year. I'm not surprised by that. And notice this too. There's many New Testament references to Old Testament events. And so you see the New Testament reference to the Old Testament events on the left. And so these New Testament scriptures are showing that these things that happen in the Old Testament are historical. And so if we can trust the scriptures in historical things, we can trust it in spiritual things. Because in John 3, 12, as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he says this, if I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And so there's a lot of earthly things that we see found in archaeology and history. And so if the Bible is trustworthy in those things, then it's going to be trustworthy in spiritual matters. But then guess what? There's also scientific reliability of the Bible. And a lady, one of the ladies brought it up on the video. For example, the scriptures tell us that the earth is suspended in space. Job 26, 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. But people in the past used to, used to think that the earth sat on the back of a turtle or some large animal. Then you see that the air has weight. Well, the Bible shown that in Job 28 verses 24 and 25. See, people in the past, they used to think that air was weightless. In the next slide, we see that people used to think the sick needed to be bled out. They were sick. They needed to be bled out to get rid of the illness. But all they had to do was read Leviticus 17 and 11, where the life of the flesh is in the blood. They would have seen that. Science is catching up to the Bible. But then it was only in the last century that that man has discovered that there are actually towering mountains and deep trenches in the depths of the sea. Where Jonah already talked about that. Jonah 2, verses 5 and 6. But not only that, but prophecies support the reliability of the Old Testament. We already talked about the fact that Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. But then you see these great examples here. For example, like Cyrus the Great. He was named 150 years before his birth. And so prophecies support the reliability of the Old Testament. But then 
The Old Testament is honest. And so this honesty supports its reliability. It didn't hide any information about its heroes. Noah got drunk. Moses misrepresented God. King David committed. It didn't hide anything about these great people of the scriptures. Shows that it's reliable. It's not hiding anything. But does the Old Testament claim to be God's word? Absolutely. You see these examples here where you see the Lord said, the Lord spoke to, thus saith the Lord. You see these scriptures. So the Old Testament itself is claiming to be the word of God. But then the New Testament also gives witness to the Old Testament as scripture. For example, Acts 17, 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Romans 10, 11, Romans 15, 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament, might have hope. In Galatians 3, 8, in the scripture, foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. Why? Because a Messiah would come from him. So even the New Testament attests to the fact that the Old Testament is scripture. So all of these things, these examples, showing us that the Old Testament is reliable, is trustworthy. But since we talked about Jesus being the son of God, in other words, God in the flesh, how does Jesus view the Old Testament? Jesus said, John ten thirty five, the scripture cannot be broken. The New Testament wasn't written yet. He was talking about the Old Testament. Those are scriptures that were there at that time. Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them. The disciples in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So if the New Testament is boring to you, look for Jesus. Jesus says it's about him. You'll see that. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus has answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. In John 17, 17, you see he holds the word of God in high regard because he believed that God is able to sanctify people by truth. Sanctify them by your truth. He says, your word is truth. And so what is the conclusion as the worship team takes the stage? The conclusion is the Old Testament is reliable. It is Trustworthy. And one thing we can learn about God from this study is that God preserved his scriptures. He he protected, he took care of, he maintained. In other words, he held together his written word. So we learn something about, about God and what he's able to do just based on that. We learn that he is a preserver, that that he is someone who holds things together. And just like he held together those scriptures, God could do the same thing for us. God will preserve us. God will hold us together. 
Oh, some of you may be falling apart, maybe something in the workplace or maybe something in your family or maybe some of you are just hanging by a thread in your marriages or in some type of important relationship. Maybe even with your career or your health, you're, you're hanging on by a thread, but it is God who is preserving you just like how he preserved his holy word. And that same God who is preserving you right now and who preserved his word, he is able to bring your salvation to a completion where you will not be lost along the way. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, your, for the Old Testament, which we focused on tonight. We thank you for the spiritual lives you've given us in Christ. And so we pray your blessing upon the remainder of this night. Protect us on our way home. Use us this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.